Lesson 9, Part 2 of Elements of Geology. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Rick Sanborn, Alexandria, Virginia. Elements of Geology by William Ruschenberger. Lesson 9, Part 2. Granitic Rocks. There can be no doubt as to the igneous nature of the preceding rocks, from the manner in which they are injected into all kinds of deposits, and from the modifications they produce in the substances they pass through or upheave. The same is true of all granitic rocks, that is, of granite properly so called, of cyanites, which resemble them more or less in appearance and pass into them in all manners, of certain nice rocks, which belong immediately to one or the other, etc. In short, it is inferred from a great mass of observations, collected first in England by Dr. McCulloch, afterwards verified by other geologists, that the granites, which are massive rocks, and therefore distinct from aqueous deposits, which are ordinarily stratified, act, on their appearance, exactly like the traps, diorites, and porphyries. In the valley of Glentilt in Scotland, granite is found injected into calcareous deposits which alternate with argillaceous schists, into which it sometimes forces separate masses. Fragments of limestone are also found enveloped in the granite itself. In other places, vertical veins traverse the rocks, sometimes entirely, sometimes terminating in pointed masses like the diorites and basalts, which also shows that the matter came from below upwards, and that it was driven with great force. These facts do not present themselves in a particular locality only, but are observed in all parts of the world. The state of pasty fusion in which the granites were is indicated by the manner in which these rocks are enveloped in certain sedimentary deposits, or effused on the different soils they pass through. In the coal measures of La Plow, to the southwest of Usul, a portion of the formation has been enveloped by porphyroid granites, which are found above and below. The coal there is hard, as on all the plateau, and the deposit is very irregular. In a great many localities we find granite superposed on all sedimentary deposits from schists, and the most ancient rocks to those of the Jurassic period. There are different places in the Alps, where one may touch at the same time superposed rocks of crystallization and the subjacent sedimentary deposit. The action of granitic rocks on those through which they pass is the same as that of the preceding rocks. Compact, oolithic, and earthy limestones are converted into saccharoid limestones from which organic remains have most frequently disappeared. They assume bright colors of every kind, green, red, black, etc., and in contact with mica are filled with garnets and various other crystalline substances. They are often converted into dolomites, which are nowhere more abundant than in formations of granite, and sometimes into gypsum, as proved by the outcroppings of this substance in certain parts of the Alps. Clays and various arenaceous substances are transformed into jasper, and finally, assume the characters of micaceous or talcose schist and gneiss. Simple sandstones of sedimentary formations, on the approach of granite, are converted into beds of granular quartz. 
It sometimes happens that modified schistose sandstones still preserve their arenaceous structure, although they may have been very solid. Even mica schists to which they pass contain here and there thin strata of sandy quartz interposed between laminae of mica, which seems to announce the remains of ancient modified sandstone. Granitic rocks referred to different ages are very abundant on the surface of the globe, being sometimes found in very lofty mountain chains and sometimes forming rounded hills disintegrated on the surface and covering considerable extents of country. Metalliferous Loads, Veins, Masses The dolomization and sulfatization of limestones, the presence of various substances in adjacent rocks, are not the only facts referable to the passage of igneous rocks from the bosom of the earth. It also happens that, on the contact of the new with the ancient rock, the deposits are filled with different metallic minerals, either disseminated or injected into fissures and between beds, or accumulated in small masses, sometimes united by slender threads. This has been remarked by M. Dufresnoy in regard to iron ores in the Pyrenees, which are found either in limestone or placed between sedimentary deposits and the granite which upheaved the solid mass. It is evident loads or seams of ores are related to igneous action. As to those which are deposited in veins, it is to be remarked we have never had occasion to follow them to a sufficient depth to ascertain whether they terminate abruptly and consequently whether they fill cracks opened from the surface towards the interior, but they are known to terminate in pointed masses upwards, as at Wachemstall in Bohemia and in many other places in small veins which have been worked. This circumstance leads us to think that metalliferous veins have been produced by an injection from the interior towards the surface in the same way as the stony veins we have mentioned. Besides, veins of this sort are strongly united to the others. Thus, at Ponchibo, the same veins are sometimes granitic and sometimes metalliferous. In many other places, metalliferous veins accompany porphyritic veins and even veins of basalt, as in Bohemia, and the two substances mutually penetrate each other, sometimes one and sometimes the other being above. On the other hand, we very frequently find, in the same localities, stony and metalliferous veins running parallel to each other, sometimes crossing in different ways, one throwing the other aside, and thus mutually producing more or less marked faults. Sometimes the stony displace the metalliferous veins, Sometimes, on the contrary, the latter turns aside the others. In everything, they act exactly alike, and it is impossible not to refer them to the same origin. It is also remarked that veins generally follow great lines of dislocation of the crust of the earth. We find in metalliferous veins the influence of those which pass through or accompany them, and which deposit, to a certain extent, substances not previously observed. The influence of the rock pass-through is seen in metalliferous veins as well as in those of trap, and it has been long known to miners that a poor vein in a determined bed at once becomes rich by passing into another, and on the contrary, hence, the sudden success and unforeseen reverses in mining operations. Metalliferous masses being in general but accumulations of small veins running in all directions, or an abundant dissemination in the midst of a stony substance of the kind attributed to the action of fire, it is clear these deposits are produced in the same way as those just mentioned. These masses, 
the principle of which present us with ores of tin, copper pyrites, and magnetic iron, are chiefly composed of granites, porphyries, various magnesian rocks in which the ores are found. The metalliferous mass of Zinwald in Bohemia is a particular granite enclosed in a porphyry. That of Altenburg in Saxony is a porphyritic mass enclosed in gneiss. The celebrated mass of magnetic iron of Teberg in Sweden is a mass of diorite enclosed in gneiss. That of Cogne in Piedmont is a mass of serpentine driven into the calciferous micaceous schist. Metalliferous lodes in regular beds are merely veins which have followed the stratification, as we observed in traps, or deposits which were formed in contact with sedimentary beds and the fused matters that upheave them. But we must not confound the masses and veins, just mentioned, with certain deposits of oolithic iron ores found in sedimentary formations. Among the latter, some form beds of more or less extent in the midst of calcareous formations Others fill wide apertures of little depth from above, which sometimes communicate with caverns, but these facts are of a different order from those just described. Metamorphism From all the facts we have cited, which might be vastly augmented in number by reference to details in many localities, we must conclude that crystalline rocks, which are all formed of silicates, extensively varied and mixed with each other, have been produced by the action of fire that at different epochs they have dislocated, uplifted, or overturned the sedimentary deposits, modifying the mass in all manners, and it is to these great phenomena that are due all the seeming disorder observed on the surface of the globe, as well as all the successive changes, the traces of which may be perceived at every step. When we see earthy or compact limestones become crystalline on the approach of these different kinds of rocks, to fill with various substances they do not contain at certain distances, to be charged with magnesia in cracking in all parts, and to disintegrate with more or less facility, when schistose clays and arenaceous substances are converted into different jaspers, and become charged with mica and amphibole, and assume the characters of gneiss, of micaceous or talcoschist. Finally, when sandstones are transformed into beds of solid quartz, can we be surprised that most modern geologists have adopted the idea of complete changes affected in a great number of sedimentary deposits, and that they resort to this metamorphism, long since perceived by Hutton, Playfair, and Dr. McCulloch, to explain a multitude of facts observed especially in deposits anciently designated under the names of primitive and transition formations. The facts appear so extraordinary that we may be led to suppose a little exaggeration. But we must reject evidence to deny that there are saccharoid limestones, dolomites, mica schists, gneiss, granular quartz, etc., which are the result of a change produced in earthy or compact limestones, clays, sands, etc., of sedimentary formation, is it then so ridiculous to suppose that such has been their origin in all cases? These ideas, now more striking because they are expressed by a proper word, are nevertheless not absolutely new. All works on geology are actually full of them, and the facts are not less remarkable from being expressed in other terms. There is no description of a country, going back to the time of Saussure, whose works are still remarkable for the fidelity of details 
in which are not seen numerous passages of different arenaceous deposits to rocks of crystallization, of schistose grau wax to talcose schists, to micaceous schists, and from these to gneiss, or the passage of sandstone to different kinds of granite and porphyries on which they rest, etc. Is not the fact of these modifications, now described under the term of metamorphism, here clearly indicated, to which time has added only more details and greater precision? It is certain that in departing from schistose grau wax, for example, and going towards some mountain or islet of crystallization, we find these substances themselves become more crystalline in character, and sometimes, without losing the organic remains they contain, become filled with new minerals. In Brittany, these schists are filled with andalusite, sometimes storotides, near all granitic deposits. Elsewhere, as in Vosges, in the mountains of Var, we see them pass to mica schist, and the latter to gneiss, which itself, insensibly, becomes granite. Now, as if the intimate union observed were not sufficient, these mica schists, then the gneiss itself, contain carburetted schist, or even graphite, veins of anthracite, which remind us of the deposits which are found further in the schists of grau wax and sufficiently marked to determine the pursuit of coal. It is, then, evident that all the rocks we have cited, no matter how they may differ, are only modifications, mere metamorphoses, of one or all, and as it is in approaching granitic rocks evidently produced by igneous action, that these metamorphoses become more and more marked, it is clear that it is to the influence of the latter that they are due. The same influences manifest on the sandstones of different ages, at various points where they are in immediate contact with granite. The modifications are such that the special name, arcos, has been applied to them. They then pass through all shades to granite and become filled with different substances that they do not contain elsewhere. Near porphyritic ejections, schists frequently present modifications of another kind. Here, the most earthy and the most evidently sedimentary parts pass by degrees to compact substances, more and more feldspathic, preserving more or less of their schistose character, and finally end by containing crystals of feldspar. Elsewhere these same matters pass to solid clays containing veins of limestone, then nodules of the same substance which assume all the characters of amygdaloids, losing only little by little their schistose structure. The same phenomena are remarked between diverse sandstones and porphyries that intersect them. The arenaceous matter gradually hardens, becomes more compact, and finally unites with the porphyry in such a manner that it is not easy to determine where one begins and the other ends. All these facts pertain really, with the exception of some details, to ancient geology, and it is only the manner of explaining them that has changed. Everything conspiring to demonstrate that crystalline substances have been produced by the action of fire and forced through sedimentary deposits, we now understand that the latter have been modified or metamorphosed in different ways by their influence in a degree corresponding to their proximity. The effects entirely cease only at greater or less distances. It is conceived that one part of these metamorphoses of sedimentary formations arise from the simple action of heat without new fusion 
but sufficient to modify the texture of masses and even to unite elements in other proportions as happens when transparent glass is submitted to a temperature insufficient to melt it, in which, nevertheless, a new crystallization takes place. But this idea is not sufficient of itself. We must conceive another action which we are not yet able to explain or account for, in virtue of which particular substances have been born or developed in the midst of rocks found in the neighborhood of diverse upturnings of which the globe is the theater. We readily conceive of the introduction of sulfuric acid, which is frequently formed in volcanoes, but we do not understand that of magnesia and different species of silicates, and as respects them, all is still purely hypothetical. We may compare these facts to cementation, by means of which iron is converted into steel, a phenomenon which is manifested not only in contact with carbonaceous matter, but extends far into the ferruginous mass, and even takes place at a distance, according to the experiments of M. Laurent, who has shown that carbonaceous matter may penetrate iron even through porcelain tubes. We also know from experiment, and many effects observed in manufactories, that the peroxide of iron, the oxides of chrome, etc., are volatilized and penetrate the substance of bodies that envelop them. The experiments of M. Gowden with a blowpipe on a detonating mixture show that silex, magnesia, and lime are also volatile oxides, the first after fusion, the others before being melted. These facts evidently lead to an explanation of all the phenomena of metamorphism and the intrusion of foreign substances into sedimentary deposits, either in veins or in a state of dissemination. Effects attributable to erosion. We have seen that waters act by the carbonic acid they contain, by their weight, by their dissolving power, by their transporting power, by their shock, as in waves of the sea, and thus denude continents. We have also pointed out that in arenaceous formations, valleys are produced by erosion, precisely as ravines are formed in sandy soils by the action of rainwater. Hence, we may infer that in every revolution that movements of the soil must have necessarily determined the waters, thrown forcibly sometimes on one side and sometimes on the other, must, as in our time, during earthquakes, have ravaged divided, and modified pre-existing deposits in various ways. Many circumstances may be explained by erosion of waters and the denudations it occasions. At first, when we see more or less numerous hillocks of sedimentary matter in a country whose summits are nearly on the same level and whose strata correspond with each other, we are naturally led to consider them as evidence of great removals affected by the waters at certain epochs, the relative dates of which remain to be ascertained. In this way we explain, according to appearance, all the sections which the sandstones present on the eastern slope of Vosges, that remarkable assemblage of peaks of every form seen at Aldersbach in Bohemia, the numerous hills that cover Rossshire in Scotland, the gypsius hills in the neighborhood of Paris, all composed of the same beds placed at the same height, and the division of the basaltic tables that crown the hills in certain localities, as well as the rupture of certain lava floods that had barricaded valleys, etc., etc. Valleys which intersect movable formations are evidently produced in the same way, 
and there is no doubt that most of those existing in solid formations have been modified by erosion of water after the rupture which gave origin to them. In this way, we may explain the smoothing of all their parieties in a great many localities and the widening of their upper parts. The Great Lakes sometimes found at the extremity of valleys, as on the two slopes of the Alps in Switzerland and Piedmont, may be attributed to the efflux of waters which rushed through them at the period of some great catastrophe and emptied with violence on the plain in which they terminated. Many other facts are explained by the power of erosion and transport by water. When, by studying faults in the interior of mines, we clearly see that the beds no longer correspond and that a part of the formation must have been uplifted, then, if the soil is level on the surface, we naturally ask what has become of the beds which ought to have formed a hillock. It is clear these beds must have been removed, which we may conceive was only by a posterior action of waters which carried away the debris and perhaps spread them over the surface. In the same way, when we see a vein form a projection, a dike on the surface of the soil, we conceive that it could not have been formed in this manner and that the uncovered part must have been once encased just as that is which is now covered. The surrounding formation has been uplifted then afterwards, at least along the whole actual height of the projection. Something similar necessarily took place at points where veins crop out on the surface or are covered by movable soil. It is not probable that melted matter injected in the crack would be immediately arrested at the surface of the earth, and it is presumable that the soil has been removed and subsequently covered by various clearings. We are thus led to understand how many basaltic masses now offer no trace of scoriaceous matter, neither in themselves nor in their vicinity. These imperfectly aggregated debris have been subsequently carried away by the action of water, and perhaps it is the same with the scoriaceous matter which must have accompanied the appearance of trap. The prodigious power exerted by waves and the effects they have produced in our times lead us to think also that all the rocks formed around islands and reefs at a short distance from coasts, or the often fanciful groups in the midst of the sea, are also remnants of some great division caused by water as much in removable matters easily disintegrated as in masses broken by earthquakes and different movements of the soil, and certain parts of which have been afterwards removed either by repeated shocks of waves or sudden debacles. In this way we may explain the numerous accidents in rocks which bound coasts or are isolated in the midst of the ocean, as in the sinkings of the chalk of Etretat and the sections of porphyritic or granitic rocks in the Shetland Islands. It is conceived that straits, more or less extended, may have been formed by the two combined actions of currents of water and rupture which the soil might have undergone by upheaval or subsidence at determined epochs. From these observations we see that many effects may be attributed to the action of water which cannot be in any other way explained. We may see denudations in the midst of mountains and valleys, recognize the ancient sinkings which bordered seas at different ages and hence appreciate their limits as well as all the other circumstances connected with them. Reference to the immediate action of water should be always carefully restricted to the movable or loose matters found on the surface of the globe. For when solid matters are in question, which water attacks too slowly, we are led to think that currents and waves 
cannot act effectively until the soil has been previously prepared by the fissures or deteriorations caused in rocks by movements of the earth. We must not confound with divisions produced by water certain accidents which may result from shrinking produced by metamorphism. This probably takes place in dolomites, which follow compact limestone in a great many places, as in the Tyrol and the Savennes. Masses of these matters are frequently split and slashed in all directions on the surface, particularly on the summits of mountains or on plateau, very nearly in the same way that calcareous deposits are cut by water. Now the change from a simple to a double carbonate, specifically heavier, requires contraction in masses submitted to dolomization. Therefore, the latter must be split and cracked in all directions, and the denudations they present are consequences of these effects. End of Lesson 9, Part 2. Recording by Rick Sanborn, Alexandria, Virginia.